For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Can you believe this? Looking to push tempo here, the Pelicans. Hold that follow through. That's right. This is what takes you to another level. Welcome in and what the Pell is up, everybody. This is Believe in the New Orleans Pelicans with your host, Elliot Clough, at Elliot Clough on Twitter. Before we get started, make sure you subscribe and or follow depending on where you're listening to the podcast. And we've had a lot of you leave rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts, but we're still looking to get those numbers up. So if you haven't done that quite yet, you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just open up your phone, scroll to the bottom, hit five stars, and then write a review on the very bottom. On today's show, we have Jonathan Alisea of the Magical Boogaloo Podcast and Magic Close Up, a magic blogging website. Today we talk SVG's tenure in Orlando, his impact on JJ Redick, and how things will translate to New Orleans. Today was a really fun one, and you're going to hear a little bit about a YouTube page at the end. If you want to subscribe over there, you can do that too. But uh, anyway, stick around. So here is our conversation with Jonathan Alisea of the Magical Boogaloo Podcast and Magic Close Up. Jonathan, how you doing today, man? We appreciate you joining us. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, like I told you earlier, uh, I had just finished, not even 10 minutes ago, a bowl of gumbo in preparation <laughs> for this podcast. So, Yes, getting into the thick of it. We appreciate it. That's, yeah. <laughs> we love it. We love it. So to dive right in, right off the bat, Jonathan, given what you know about Stan Van Gundy being a, the head coach for the, the Magic for a good amount of years there, what were your initial thoughts on the hiring of SVG by the Pelicans? All right. So a little known fact, I think as a Magic fan, um, Stan Van Gundy is still regarded as probably one of the most beloved figures in all of Orlando Magic history. So I think no matter where he was going to go, he was going to get a lot of support uh, from the Magic fan base. Um, but just in regards to fit, it's a little bit clunky, but I think if, if anyone can make it work, Van Gundy can. I think he's that good of a coach. I think he's in the upper echelon of NBA coaches. I'm sure some of the perception regarding him uh, diminished some when he was in Detroit. But, I mean, that could be attributed to a number of different factors. You know, at the end of the day, uh, for uh, I should say uh, magic scumbag and uh, current, I think, CEO of the team, Alex Martins, uh, after he fired Stan Van Gundy, more or less said, let's face it, there's no one better uh, at X's and O's than Van Gundy. 
So I think just in that aspect alone, the, the Pelicans are getting, you know, one hell of a coach. Awesome. Well, you mentioned that you thought it was clunky. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that at some point. But why did you think clunky off the top of your head? So I think, you know, obviously a lot has changed since Van Gundy uh, was the coach of the Miami Heat. But I think what he's most remembered for is his time in Orlando. And in Orlando, he was a pioneer of sorts. I think you can throw in Mike D'Antoni a little bit there too, Don Nelson. Uh, but Van Gundy was very much in, in – I don't want to say responsible, but he had a hand in the evolution of the three ball. You know, a larger emphasis placed on outside in or inside out as opposed to outside in. And, you know, playing four out back then with Richard Lewis at the power forward and Hito Turkoglu at the three, they were somewhat interchangeable at times. Uh, That was a a very novel concept back then. um, You know, a lot of pundits, a lot of analysts would say the Magic are a great team, but they can shoot themselves out. You know, they shoot too many threes, so on and so forth. Fast forward to 2020 and, I think the, if I'm not mistaken, the number of threes the Magic were taking back then uh, would rank towards the bottom of the league today, which is asinine to think. <laughs> but the Pelicans, I think, one, regardless of who, who's coach, I think Zion and B.I., kind of an odd fit. I think it's ta- they're, they're super talented, so I think there's a way to make it work if you can find other pieces to surround those guys with. But what what Van Gundy likes to do is have a point guard um, who is a pull-up threat from three. You know, I think Lonzo has definitely improved as a three-point shooter. But, you know, coming off that pick and roll, is he really someone, you know, opposing defenses are going to game plan for as a shooter? You need that space to operate in Van Gundy's system. And I think it's, it's just a bit clunky because of it. Sure. And off the dribble, Lonzo, I mean, you're exactly right. Off the dribble, Lonzo can't, can't shoot. He's a catch and shoot guy. And SVG talked about it on the low post podcast. He talked about putting the ball in Brandon Ingram's or Drew Holiday or Zion's hands to initiate the offense. So maybe that could work. Well, one of the things he did in Orlando, um, he, I don't want to say he revitalized Hito Turkoglu, uh, his career, but he definitely used him in a way that he hadn't been used prior. You know, this is a six foot 10 uh, small forward with, you know, I don't want to say unlimited range, but damn close to it. Great ball handler can see over the defense, good passer. And I think prior, like in Sa- Sacramento and San Antonio, he was mostly used as a, as a scorer and a three point shooter, spot up shooter. Van Gundy had the, I, I guess, gall, if you, if you will, to, run him as the team's point guard, in a sense. You know, Jameer Nelson and Hido Turkoglu oftentimes split the responsibility of running the offense in the half court. And I think Brandon Ingram has a lot of those same capabilities. Obviously, he's a little bit longer, much more athletic, better all-around scorer than Hido Turkoglu was. But remember, back then, Hido was averaging like 25-5, and 26-6, and six, something along those lines. I think it would not be out of the realm of possibility to see Ingram again uh, as the point forward for the Pelicans. I know he he fulfilled that role somewhat last year as well. I think 
with Van Gundy at the helm, you'll see a lot more of it. And I think same with Zion. I, I mean, I don't know how much I trust Zion as a, as a point for like a Draymond Green type, but again, he's 19, 20 years old and he's as close to a blank slate as you can get. If you really work at it, much like Giannis in Milwaukee, um, if you really work at it, you know, put him in those situations, make him uncomfortable, teach him, you know, maybe, maybe you can see some Draymond Green-esque influence in his game too. We've talked about it. Zion's a very underrated passer too. I mean, putting the ball in his hands and having him put it on the ground isn't necessarily the most ideal thing by any means, but at least for not, not for right now, like you said, he is, he is still incredibly young, but put the ball in his hands, he's going to move it. So obviously cause for concern in terms of turning the ball over too because of that youth, but I could see it. I could definitely see it. And, and, with with the humility that he's shown and the willingness to grow, I could see them putting the ball in his hands for sure. I want to ask you something too. I guess I'm sure you would have gotten to this, but I'm like eager to find out. Like I know there's an odd fit in at the point guard, or I should say at the guard position in general. I don't think you guys have been running traditional point guard sets for a while. I think Drew Holiday and Lonzo Ball and uh, those guys kind of are interchangeable. I know there's been talk like, Rumors, I should say, that, you know, maybe the Pelicans move Drew Holiday. Uh, maybe they, they move Lonzo Ball because he's not the greatest fit there. What, like, what is, what is the general consensus among, like, Pelican fans? Like, what do they want to happen? What do they see happening? <laughs> there isn't a consensus. That's, that's the thing, yeah. You know, I put together a Drew Holiday trade series where I talked to media members from seven different teams. And, and we got some good, like decent offers, but the majority of those guys were, were underselling it. They want Drew Holiday, but they didn't want to give up what it would take to get Drew Holiday. Yeah. And in reference to Lonzo, I mean, his, his trade stock is super low right now because of how he played in the bubble. Now, I've heard a lot of, we got to keep them both. We got to run it back. I've heard some, we got to trade Drew Holiday because he's a great individual defender, but not a great team defender. Lonzo's hit his ceiling, all this other stuff, which I don't believe that for sure. I'm cool with keeping them both. I'm cool with the trade depending on obviously what they get in return. Um, I'm a big proponent of probably initiating a trade, not necessarily initiating trade, but listening to trade talks with the uh, Nuggets and with Brooklyn in terms of, of Drew. Now, a lot of those packages that we've seen where you get a decent amount back include JJ Redick. So if you trade JJ Redick, well, that, yeah, that's a great reaction right there. If you trade JJ Redick right after getting Stan Van Gundy, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So there's a lot of different things can, that can happen. And there's basically no consensus with Pelicans fans. I got to say, I think when JJ Redick found out the, the news, I can just envision him jumping for joy, like literal jumping for joy. Like that, if, you, if you're on Twitter at all and you're paying attention to their tweets, they have so much in common, those two. And J.J. Redick has constantly harped about the influence Stan Van Gundy had on him. He, he credits him. He doesn't think he'd still be in the league today if he didn't play for Stan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. But I do want to get to my second question before we start talking about 
J.J. Redick. Now, Orlando prior to Stan was was pretty average or below average franchise at best when you don't look at those 90s runs with like Penny Hardaway and Shaq. I mean, the year prior to Stan going, 2006, 2007, he went 40 and 42. Years, two years before that, they went 36 and 46 in 05, 06, 04, 05, and then 21 and 61 in 2003 and 2004. What exactly do you do you think or, or what do you know for a fact that, that Stan did to turn around the franchise, especially so quick going 52 and 30 in his first year? Well, I think part of it was timing. You know, Dwight was evolving as a player, um, getting better gradually. I think same for Jameer Nelson. Um, and then, of course, the Magic had some cap space. They went after Richard Lewis and, you know, this and that. But I think – there were two things that stick out. Um, I want to say that I'm, like I said, Van Gundy is probably one of the most beloved figures in, in magic history. So I'm not sure how biased I am right now or how much I'm misremembering due to all the good times we had as, with him as a coach. But he was, uh, first and foremost, not afraid to mix things up a little bit. Like I said, Richard Lewis at the four. Initially, what doesn't get talked about is um, that year, I think it was Tony Batie, um, he got injured before the season started. I don't remember what it was. There was something that caused him to miss a ton of games. And so off the bat, Van Gundy, uh, you know, we had just signed Richard Lewis. We had Hito Turklu, and we didn't really have a ton of depth at the four spot. So he, he, he goes to Richard Lewis. He's like, I know we signed you to be the three. Uh, due to injuries, we're going to need you to play the four. Um, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there were other guys on the roster off the top of my head. I don't know who was there. He could have gone with a number of guys at the four, but he chose Richard Lewis to play that spot. And, you know, at the time, like I said, it was very unconventional. You, you didn't really see fours with the exception of maybe Dirk. Occasionally, KG uh, shooting threes, you know, in any capacity. And so it opened up a lot, uh, not only for the, the Magic as a whole, but Dwight Howard. You know, he was able to – it was impossible to double-team him. You know, if you double-teamed him, you know he was going to be able to kick it out to any one of the four other perimeter guys on the wing who were all excellent three-point shooters. You had uh, J.J. Redick, of course, you had – who wasn't really playing too much, but he was there. You had – Keith Bogans, who was a good three-point shooter. Jameer Nelson, of course. Hito Turkoglu. So on and so forth. And I think at the time, that was such a new novel concept that opposing defenses didn't know how to adjust. You know, they were still playing two bigs down low. And it was just a matchup nightmare. So I think part of it is, is that. That's kind of sort of what shifted. But... When you go small like that, when you're playing four out, typically you sacrifice on the defensive end. You know, you're going to give up something somewhere. And credit to Van Gundy, his principles, regardless of who was manning that four spot or who was on the, on the floor at any given time, uh, he never abandoned his principles. So he was always going to be a defensive first coach. You know, uh, securing defensive rebounds was important. You know, help, help defense communicating – being in the right positions, so on and so forth. And if you took a possession off on that end, uh, you weren't getting minutes, which is part of why J.J. Reddick didn't play early on. A number of guys didn't. 
he was not afraid to yank you. Like you, he did it to Hito Turkoglu a few times, quite a few times. Have a twenty point game going into the third quarter, missed a few defensive assignments, yanked. And I think that sort of accountability to engagement is is kind of his 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 sticking point as a coach. He's going to stick to his philosophies and he's going to expect you to play and be a professional at all times. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a big thing that we've talked about with SVG coming to New Orleans in, in terms of accountability because that's just absolutely not been there, especially with Alvin Gentry at the helm in New Orleans. That, that willingness to, to pull players if they're, if they're not filling their assignments. And there was just... I don't know if you, how much you watch the Pelicans play in the bubble, but there is just complete lack of urgency on the defensive end. So right when you said accountability, that was music to my ears, man. I, I, and it's music to a lot of Pelicans fans' ears as well. And in terms of that, I, I just shared a video from, I think it was the No Chill podcast with Gilbert Arenas where he talked about SVG would – play and shoot around with players and, and joke around. But then when a countdown clock that they had in the gym would hit zero to start practice, he flipped a switch and went absolutely insane. And I'm sure that that kind of correlates with his focus on accountability and focus on defense is part of who he is. Have you heard any stories about that as, as a magic expert, as a guy who's covered the magic? So, I mean, nothing, you know, comes to mind immediately like no specific examples but um his protege steve clifford current magic coach uh shares a lot of those those same principles and he's one of those guys that i think you know with the exception of dwight howard has had nothing but glowing responses to you know his character and his work ethic as a coach so on and so forth and you know there's there's there was a period of time when Dwight and Stan were actually on really good terms and Stan has this, I don't know how to, almost like a, like a cat in heat when he's angry, his voice sounds like a cat in heat and Dwight used to do a really terrible impersonation of it. But going back watching like how the players would poke fun at, at the coach and the coach would take it in stride and, you know, kind of seeing some of the antics during pregame, like Stan allowed his guys to have fun. Like I think it was 09, uh, 10 that season. Uh, we had Jay will, we had uh, Vince Carter, so on and so forth. And during the pregame, like layups and warmups and whatnot, uh, towards the last couple of minutes, they would have dunk offs and they would all goof around. It was just absurd. It was, but the fans loved it. And, Jay Will, probably like 37 at this point in time, maybe 38. Obviously, he could not dunk. So Dwight would stand underneath the rim. Um, Jay Will would run, and then Dwight would pick him up and like <laughs> toss him, help him dunk. And like little things like that, I think people underestimate. Like they think, oh, Stan's a hard ass. He's, he's overly strict. He doesn't know how to relate to players, so on and so forth. But if that was the case, those kind of antics – uh, aren't happening. You know, I think when you're winning um, and he's, you know, proud of your performance and he thinks you guys are doing the right, the right thing as professional basketball players, you know, he'll allow wiggle room, you know, and, and not to sound like he's some sort of dictator, but, you know, he's not going to get on your ass for having fun. You know, there, that's a, that was a common theme 
in those late 2000s Magic team. They, they were a fun team. They got along. They liked to joke. You know, and they were able to do so because they were winning games. I think Stan will hold you guys accountable. He'll, he'll hold players accountable. And it's all fun and games until you start losing, you know. And I think he's the kind of coach that can navigate and manage the egos of the players in that regard. Because, you know, when you're losing, your egos are are drifting up. They're drifting down. Uh, it's easy. And I think, you, as you know, you covered the Pelicans. You've seen it. When the going gets tough, it gets really tough, you know. So I think he's the type of coach who can kind of keep those things, you know, in place, make sure the players are happy, they're having fun, that they're communicating. You know, at the end of the day, it's a damn game. You know, it's not life or death, but they are professional athletes. They get paid to do, you know, what they do at a high level. And I think he'll hold them accountable. So you referenced it there, Jonathan, uh, about his potential. I mean, the narrative has been from certain pundits and, and certain networks, his potential inability to relate to, to younger players. I mean, where do you think that comes from? I mean, you, you just said it. You think it's, it's, it's basically irrelevant. It's not true. I mean, Kendrick Perkins said it, so I have no reason to believe it. He also believed that Jason Kidd or Mark Jackson was a better hire in this situation, which no, I don't know a single person that would agree with that. Where do you think that, that narrative comes from, his potential inability to relate to players? Uh, Shaq. It comes from Shaq. Uh, it's, I think it's part of the reason why, if not the biggest reason why, the Miami Heat fired him the year they won the championship. I think it was they were 11-10 and 10 at the time, one game over 500. They were, weren't performing particularly great, and Stan got the ax because of it. And what came out after that was a lot of Shaq talking about how Stan couldn't relate to the players, so on and so forth. And then, of course, when Dwight wanted to be traded, did you have you seen that press conference? I just watched it. Yeah. yeah. First of all, that's my favorite thing. I put <laughs> that. You know, you know, it's twelve o'clock now. If they fire me now. I'll go home. I'll have a nice day. Like, that's that's who Stan is. So um, that uh, that kind of. I guess hostility between coach and player, star player that he's known for. I think part of that is because he, unlike most coaches, um, he's not going to let things slide. You know, if you miss a defensive assignment as, you know, superstar center Dwight Howard or superstar center Shaquille O'Neal, he's going to hold you accountable the same way he would uh, the fourth guy off the bench. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't show favorites. He doesn't let it slide. Like, if anything, he asks more of his star players than he does of his, his role players. And I think when you're a multimillionaire superstar, you expect everyone to love you. Obviously, not every star player is like that, but I think there are. I think Shaq is one of them. I think Dwight is another one of them. And I think the fallout, you know, in hindsight, definitely falls on the star, specifically Dwight Howard, not, not Shaq and not, uh, yeah, not Shaq. And Van Gundy got the blame for it early on. And I think it, it interfered with some of the coaching opportunities he got. Um, if you look at his time in Detroit, obviously they underachieved, but there was no narrative about him not being able to relate to the younger players. You know, there was narrative about him being a terrible executive, which he probably very well was. Um, his team's underachieved. But look at Andre Drummond. He had some of his best years under Van Gundy. He had, you know, huge numbers. He was an all-star under Van Gundy. So 
what does that tell you? I think he has a knack for being able to relate and develop younger guys. Drummond had his best years. You had Dwight Howard blossom into a potential future Hall of Famer. Jameer Nelson had his lone all-star year under Van Gundy. Reddick credits him. Um, Martin Gortat credits him. Hito Turkoglu credits him. The list goes on and on. Absolutely. And, and I've heard this narrative from people like Kendrick, like uh, like uh, Skip Bayless. So, yeah. 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 A, bunch the, of, a bunch of idiots. Exactly. <laughs> Two guys that I do not necessarily listen to on a frequent basis for good yeah. reason. So I, I'd like to think that that narrative is, is unnecessary. I think it comes from the fact that he didn't play basketball too. I mean, at, at least at that high level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other coaches in the league who didn't play at that high level and have been successful. Does it help? I would, I would say so. I mean, you look at Doc Rivers, you look at Steve Kerr. These guys have played in the league. I mean, go way back, Phil Jackson. Yeah. So I, I think it helps, but is it necess- absolutely necessary? I don't think so. I think by the time you get to Stan Van Gundy's level, like look at the guys he's coached, like the guys I mentioned, uh, there was Shaq, there was Wade, Dwight Howard, of course. Past his prime, Vince, uh, Gilbert Arenas past his prime. He's, he's coached star players, you know, and I, I think I tweeted something along the lines um, of this, but like, if Zion and B.I. and, you know, Jackson Hayes, so on and so forth, if those guys don't buy into what Stan's selling, that's on them, not on him. You know, this, this is a guy that's coached legends, absolute le- legends. And he's been around the league for like 30 years. You know, if you're not going to listen to him, if you're not going to respect him, if you're not going to, you know, take his advice and his, his you know, decision-making, then that's on you, the player. Now – and part of what he's been known for, this, this wisdom, his, his flexibility with offenses and, and moving around what he does schematically based on the roster, one of those things is that four-out, one-in type of offense that he ran in Orlando with Dwight as the one, and obviously all those shooters, J.J. Hito, Richard Lewis. Does that translate to the Pels situation based on what you know about the roster, the way it was constructed for the Magic back in the day? I mean, you mentioned Richard, you mentioned Hito. Those guys are pretty big. I mean, they're 6'10", six, 6", six, however tall Richard Lewis was, 6'8", six, 6'9". Yeah. Six, um, and, and Pels just don't have that type of height combined with that type of range as well. I mean, when they were running small ball and uh, with, with Melly at the four and Zion at the five, it looked pretty efficient. It was really fun to watch. But the only way they got better defensively because of that is because of how good their offense was. Because Melly is a – Zion's a horrible defender. So do they need – more, I mean, do they need more three and D guys? Do they need more length? Do they need more height in order to make that four out one in type of offense work in New Orleans with with Zion as that one in the in the inside? So uh, I'm a little bit biased. I think uh, so. I just a little backstory. When Van Gundy was with the Magic, I was in my like late teens through early twenties, and a lot of my basketball ideologies were formed based on his principles, and you know with Steve Clifford currently at the helm, a lot of that stuff kind of has remained. So I think I may be a bit biased when I say this, but I think Jackson Hayes is a good starting point for the Pelicans. You know, I think in order for the Stan Van Gundy system to work, you need a guy who can protect 
the rim and is a good vertical athlete, a good rim runner. I think both as, you know, in the offensive system playing four out and also defensively. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky because for as much as I love Hayes, I think he's definitely a flawed player. He's kind of a super athlete, you know, high energy guy, but not particularly skilled. So I think in order for it to work, we're going to have to decide like, Hey, is this the guy we're running at the five? Are we going to continue with Derek favors? Who's kind of on the decline, or are we going to go after somebody, you know, and play the five first and foremost, I think in order for it to work, you need to solidify that five position. But then, like you said, it gets clunky a little bit with Zion and BI defensively. It's, it's just tough because the Pelicans have so many weapons, I think scattered throughout the roster. Like they're, they're, in my opinion, the deepest team in the league. What they're lacking in top-tier talent, they more than make up for, you know, at, with end-of-the-bench guys. And in order for Van Gundy's system to work, again, uh, if he runs the same system that he was running in Orlando or something similar to it, you're going to need uh, 3 and D guys. The Magic always had someone like Keith Bogans or Matt Barnes or Mikel Petras. Um, I think, you're, like we talked about, you're going to need a, a capable – shooter as a point guard someone who can operate and execute in pick and roll situations both as a passer uh a scorer shooter so on and so forth someone who has some gravity there and i think maybe maybe lonzo's that guy if he can if he can nail the the, the pull-up jumpers uh maybe drew holiday's that guy as well i don't know it's 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 tough to say i think for it to work there there needs to be some roster turnover not much some tweaking here and there, but I don't know. I mean, you probably can speak to it better than I can. Like what, like knowing what you know about Van Gundy, how, how do the Pelicans, you know, go from there? Make that work. You know, uh, we've been talking a lot about the need for a three and D player because of how, how awful they were defensively this year. The Pelicans are, were just garbage. And, I mean, we got Alvin Gentry at the helm. That's just what's going to happen. I mean, Chris Finch, an incredible offensive mind as well, but it just – the defense just wasn't there. There was no emphasis on it. So, that's going to be a big piece. I mean, looking at free agency, if the Pels go for that one, I mean, you know him. DJ Augustine is a guy that a lot of people have been pushing for to bring in as a veteran point guard in New Orleans. He'd be an excellent fit. I, that's what I, I would completely agree with that. And I think he, he's a guy that, that Lonzo can learn from that he can, I mean, he's a veteran presence with a bunch of these young guys, Brandon Ingram, Zion, et cetera. And, and you mentioned Derek favors, you mentioned Jackson Hayes, the fives that are currently on the roster. Jackson is very, very raw, very raw. He relies on his athleticism so much, especially defensively. Um, he's working on his jump shot, but it's still not fantastic. Derek Favors, I'm more than okay with moving on from this offseason. Shell of himself. If you want to compare it to those Orlando Magic rosters, and if, if SVG wants to model that, or if David Griffin thinks that's the route, they've got to get a th- uh, more threes and fours on the roster, in, in my mind's eye, and, and roll with – I think they got to put Zion at the five. They're going to run a four-out, one-in type of offense because – Zion showed in his debut that he can hit a three if he's wide the frick open, but he, he's not a, you know, he's not a pull-up shooter. He's a guy you give it to in the, in the lane and let him do his work. So I've been talking a lot about guys like Mo Harkless, the Morris twins, um, Pat Williams in the draft, maybe Alex Edge if you think you can develop him and get him a little bit thicker because he makes, I mean, Brandon Ingram makes 
him look like a twig. <laughs> so, and then if you go the point guard route in the draft to Kyra Lewis, yeah, there's, there's options in this year's free agency class, but there's, there's very few where it's like, let's get him. Let's get him. I mean, I like, like you said, DJ Augustine is a perfect fit near perfect fit. I like Mo Harkless, but the, the Pels also don't have a lot of money to work with this yeah. off season too. So there's well, a lot the things- of there that I, I, when I was looking at potential free agents for the Pelicans too, is because I'm using the magic as a template. You know, I don't think there's any one guy that can provide what Dwight does um, or did back then, either via trade or free agency. But if you want to be able to play four out, maybe you get a, a center that can shoot threes, right? One guy that comes to mind, Serge Ibaka, you know, maybe available via sign and trade, depending on what happens over there in, in, in Toronto. Um, you know, I think a lot of moves will be made in Milwaukee, maybe Brooke Lopez for Drew Holiday, something centered around that, where maybe you, you, you sacrifice the better player to get someone who maybe is the better fit. And I think, too, I, I forgot what podcast I was listening to today. Uh, but they said it that the Pelicans are kind of in between being uh, like pushing to be a contender or potentially rebuild. I think first and foremost, before they go out and nab any of these guys, that's what they got to, they got to figure out because they can go either way and have tremendous success either way, given their roster and the amount of draft picks they have. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, with the way the roster is currently constructed, the SVG higher, the amount of picks, because they can move those picks super easy and, mm. and either move up, get the guy that they fit there, they feel fits for the long term or, or, you know, go out and get somebody in a trade, package them and, and move maybe a few pieces that are on the roster as well. And I, I, I think they're in a win now mode. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's the avenue they're going to go, unless you know this upcoming season's an absolute disaster. So, yeah, I, I mean, like you said, those those names that that can shoot threes from the center position, and even though the league has evolved to where centers, a lot of centers are at least trying to do that, they're still not. You know, they're not a dime a dozen centers, yeah, which is why they have a premium. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, you look at this year's free agent class there are some names in there that could fit defensively, especially get, get boards, really help the defense. And, and there's Tristan Thompson, Nerland's Noel. Noel is going to come fairly cheap. Tristan Thompson, I think will come cheap. Serge Ibaka is going to be the tough one that I don't think is going to come cheap. Also, he just got a taste of a championship. I feel like he can be utilized elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Brooklyn or, or another team that's looking to push for a title, the Lakers, so it's it's tough when you look at that model and and I mean everything can't be fixed this off season as much as we want it to be as much as we want the Pels to be championship contenders right off the bat and Zion's at uh, the beginning of Zion's career here Brandon Ingram starting hopefully a long career in New Orleans I don't know that anything other than just making the playoffs is really going to be viable this upcoming year, especially with the strength of the Western conference. I mean, we saw how well the Suns played Uh, the Kings have some pieces there to work with. So, I mean, the Spurs are the Spurs. They didn't make the playoffs. Phil Blazers are back. So to interrupt really quick, another guy that may be available who can man the, you know, the interior defensively and also hit threes might come at a, a decent price, you know, range Aaron Baines. 
Yeah, we've talked about him too. He's a little injury prone and he's also yeah. 34, 33, yeah. 34. So there's that. You know, I, I think he'd be really fun at times. I think he hit those like nine threes in a game with the Suns or yeah. something this year. Well, you got to imagine too, like in today's NBA, I mean, unless you have a Joel Embiid or Vucevic or Jokic or whatever, you don't really need a starting center to play more than 20 minutes per game. And I think at 34 years old, maybe he's an option. Sure. Touche. And, and how much Zion thrived at the five and small ball this year too. Mm-hmm. You could probably make that work. Fair enough. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. You yeah. It's, I mean, it's in. like what the Warriors did. They started Bogut, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a night and Draymond Green got the rest of the five minutes. Right. Right. And this last year, Derek Faber has only played 24 minutes a game too. Mm-hmm. So that's fair. I, that's a talking point that we haven't addressed yet. So as we continue to talk more about SVG and what he'll bring to New Orleans. JJ said that Stan was so huge for his growth as an NBA player. We had like three or four quotes there just from like the All the Smoke podcast and then one of his podcasts back in 2016, the Chronicles of Reddick. What did SVG do? I'm sure you saw him getting better and better and better and better and starting to start and, and really contribute for those Magic teams. Is there anything specific that comes to mind that SVG really did for JJ's growth in his tenure in Orlando? So a a number of things. I am a Duke basketball fan, right? And part of my love for the team came from JJ Redick. I think sophomore year, his sophomore year at Duke is when I really started to pay attention to him. And, you know, what I saw was just like this really ballsy kid, you know, (laughs) would really thrive. Like, uh, he's talked about it. I, it's well documented. He's probably one of the top three, four most hated college basketball players of all time. What he went through is something fierce and uh, something about that just drew me to JJ Redick as a player. So naturally, uh, in 2006, when the Magic drafted him, number 11, which, mind you, 2006, number six, that's June 11. That's my birthday, June 11. It was a, it was a sign. It needed to happen. That happened for me and me alone. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah. So early on in his career, Brian Hill was the coach and he couldn't get off the bench. I really, I don't understand why, but I think it ended up working out because under Van Gundy, um, he was forced to pick up on some defensive principles, work on his body, especially like if you look at him in college in those first two years in the NBA, he was, he was super thin. I think right now he's like at his college weight, he said, go look at pictures of JJ Redick, you know, the late 2000s, early 2000s, even some time with the Clippers. The guy was jacked, shredded. And I think, you know, his attention to detail um, mirrored that of Van Gundy's, his attention to working on his body, how he approached the game, how he approached his routine. He never swayed from it. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with Van Gundy more or less saying, like, if you want to play, you know, I don't care how well you can shoot or what you can do on this end. You need to buy into the defensive principles that we're running. You need to buy into working on your body, you know, being able to – you may only play 15 minutes a night, but you need to physically be able to play 48 minutes, you know, those kind of things. And I think that rubbed off on J.J. Redick and – yeah, it's just it, it, a lot of Redick is an extension of Stan Van Gundy, I think. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him almost like a player coach in New Orleans if he wasn't already. 
uh, especially with Van Gundy there. He, he knows Van Gundy like the back of his hand. You know, I think if, if Van Gundy struggles to reach some of these younger players, maybe, maybe Reddick can act as an extension to the coach and be like, Hey guys, I know he's tough. I know this, I know that I've been there before. Trust me, if you buy into it, you know, he will do amazing things for your career, do amazing things for this team. Yeah. And I think JJ has really grabbed the, the attention and the focus of a lot of these young guys. I I think he's really stepped into that leadership role in new Orleans, not necessarily to the degree of, you know, a LeBron James or, or anything like that, because JJ hasn't had to be, that guy in a lot of places in his career yet. This is really uh, one of the first stops in his career where he's been a leader, let alone kind of the, the veteran presence in the locker room, the guy who, who's willing to, to speak and not necessarily all the time. He, the Pelicans were kind of lacking that one real vocal guy. If there was a vocal guy in the locker room. It was JJ. So I think he's got their attention and I think they respect his, his opinion there in New Orleans. Well, one of the things too, I've said it, especially when he was at the Magic, I used to love to say this, like he had that quote-unquote Mamba mentality. Like he's a psycho in regards to how hard he works. He's an absolute psycho. I think he's even admitted it on his, on his podcast. I don't remember who he had on, but he was talking about how the head athletic trainer for the Clippers, or maybe the 76ers, had to tell him to ch- quote-unquote chill the fuck out because he didn't know how to like stop. He just had to always work and work as hard as he possibly could all the time. I think that's contagious. And I think, you know, it lends itself well to younger players. Obviously, you know, as you get older, you're going to monitor your body. You're going to work out a little bit differently. You're going to work smarter, not harder, so on and so forth. But I think having a guy like JJ around who is a workhorse at 37 years old, he's accomplished almost everything and then some. That, you know, coming into the draft in 2006, I don't think anybody expected J.J. Reddick to still be one of, one of the three players left from his, his draft class. And I think players today, especially, you know, maybe players who didn't get to watch him in college or didn't really understand the impact or the type of player he was in college and who only view him solely as NBA player J.J. Reddick, they look at that and be like, wow, like this guy, you know, role player, 17 years in the league, has improved his game every single year up until like the last year or two just constantly improved I think that's going to rub off on guys I think he talks a lot about uh Frank Jackson you know I think guys like Zion who probably he already has a rapport with BI there's a lot of Duke influence on that team I think that's actually a good thing because if anyone so you let me let me rephrase this before I get carried away. You said you you are fairly familiar with college basketball, right? Yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. So you you kind of understand that like Duke players specifically because they've had they've all had the same coach through generations. There's a bond there that I think a lot of lot of players don't have with their alma maters because of the coaching turnover, so on and so forth. But these Duke players are like family, and I think if JJ Reddick steps up and says like, Hey, this is what needs to happen. This is what we need to do. You have at least five other guys on that team who know right off the bat to listen to him. Mm. And then those five other guys are making a, you know, a statement to maybe the other seven guys on the bench. Like, Oh, these five guys are listening to JJ. Let's follow their lead. 
Absolutely. I, I love the way that you put that. And the thing about JJ too is I, I'm sure you mentioned that you're a big fan. I'm sure that you listen to his podcast. The dude is so well-spoken. He just appears to be a good person. And I mean, we've seen his <laughs> his personality come out on the bench with, with Brandon Ingram in the bubble. And, and we've seen that he gets along, like you said, with Zion, with Lonzo. And, you know, Josh Hart's a good guy, a smart mm-hmm. guy. You know, he's got to listen to J.J. Reddick too. So, so there's that and, and some really good stuff there, Jonathan. Now, before we let you go, you described yourself when we first started talking about you coming on the podcast as a Stan Stan. So is yeah. there anything that we, we might not have hit on today that, that makes you say that about SVG? Well, the thing is, I think people are going to love him because he's a straight shooter. I know sometimes players don't always love it, but after a game, when he's doing media interviews, he will tell you exactly what went wrong. He's not going to you know, hide any punches from you. He's going to if, – if you guys you know, lose by 30 and Lonzo Ball has eight turnovers, four assists, he's going to call him out. You know, he's going to – yeah, he's going to hold his players accountable <laughs> both publicly and privately. And that is uh, – I think that's part of what, uh, what fans loved about him. The accountability, the, the straightforwardness, and, you know, not to make it political, but if you do subscribe to his political beliefs, I think it's, you know, just like anything else, you might buy into him more as a person. If you don't, then whatever – at least you have him as a basketball coach and you can appreciate him at that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some great stuff today from Jonathan Alisea at the underscore John DeLorean on Twitter if you want to check him out. For those of you who are watching, listening on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, hit that like button, and don't forget to check out the pod on all available platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, etc. Once again, Jonathan Alisea, contributor to the Close-Up Magic and the Magical Boogaloo podcast. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. And there you have it, Pels fans. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Really fun podcast with Jonathan Alisea. Again, go check him out, the underscore John DeLorean on Twitter. And while you're over there, if you haven't done so yet, I don't know what you're doing. Make sure to go follow at Elliot Clough on Twitter. And before you leave this app, wherever app you're on, make sure you subscribe and or follow, depending on where you're listening to the podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a rate and review. Do it! That really helps us out. Go check out the YouTube page. Now that we're doing that, it's just Elliot Clough on YouTube. And if you want to subscribe and like our more more recent videos, that'll really help us out. Go check out every single Believe podcast on Believe.com. And you can also see some new writings from the staff of The Bird Rights at TheBirdRights.com. Com. Folks, again, thanks so much for tuning in today. I am Elliot Clough, and this was Believe in the New Orleans Pelicans. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.